0: Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung and welcome to Prophecy Today. If you can give me 90 minutes, I'm going to give you the world. Our broadcast partners are standing by in different parts of the world for the purpose of giving us information that will assist us as we think about these current events and how they fit into the prophetic scenario found in God's Word, the urgency of the moment and where we are in God's time for the future. So keep the dial set right where it is. We'll interact with these broadcasts. Partners and their reports in a moment. Just this heads up in the second half hour, Don DeYoung. Dr. Don DeYoung is a scientist and an astronomer. When we were talking with him, he was making his way out towards the Grand Canyon, he and his family, for some hiking out there in the wintertime. I think he's a bit crazy. But anyway, we're going to be talking to him about evolution. Last week was Charles Darwin's birthdate and we're going to be talking about evolution, how Christian parents can train their children in the biblical truths of creation. We'll also talk about some of the light phenomena that is taking place in the heavenlies. Very interesting, seemingly a precursor to an end time prophetic significance that is happening in our world. In addition to that, we're going to bring to this microphone, Bob McGinnis, Colonel McGinnis at uh, the Pentagon. We're going to talk about AI. He's written a couple of books on the subject, and that's artificial intelligence. We'll be talking about that. So a lot of interesting conversations on the broadcast. Keep it right where it is. We're here at Broadcast Central in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and we're going out to our buddy Ken Timmerman. He looks at geopolitical activities. He has written a number of books as well. All of these broadcast partners much smarter than the host of the broadcast, but hey, I know what to do. If I'm not smart enough, I bring the smartest guys on, and they give us the information. So Ken, let's get started with the information. Looks like uh, Turkey and Tayyip trying to unite about 61 different Islamic nations to form somewhat of an army of Islam. What do you know?
1: Well, Jimmy, there's a really extraordinary thing going on. Turkey today uh, where you have the military advisor to the president, Tayyip Erdogan, who has at the same time as he's military advisor, he has a private consulting company. And this private consulting company, which is not very well known, i got to say, they are launching uh, an initiative across the Muslim world to create a pan-Islamic army that would be pretty much in the backbone of the army would be Turkish military, but it would include units from other countries as well and the goal of this pan-islamic army is going to be to take israel to defeat israel but they also want to station troops in gaza and oh by the way while they're at it they want to hold uh, naval exercises off the coast of israel to hem the israelis in i find it extraordinary that something like this comes to the light of day these are the secret dreams of muslim leaders that normally they keep to themselves or they speak behind closed doors. And this has just come to the fore recently, and it's really quite amazing. We have here a glimpse of what the secret desires are of Tayyip Erdogan, his top military advisor, and I think quite a number of people in Turkey itself. Now, this said they would like Iran, Syria, and a number of Arab countries to join his pan-Islamic army, I don't think there's much chance that that is ever going to happen. But as I say, it's extraordinary to get a glimpse inside their dreams and his vision for the future.
0: And it's a glimpse inside Bible prophecy as well. Ezekiel 38, Psalm 83, uh, Daniel chapter 11 calls for the exact same thing to happen. So it fits into that scenario, but it also fits into Erdogan's scenario, wanting to be the pan-Islamic leader. If he has a pan-Islamic military operation, that kind of helps him as well.
1: well. Well, that's absolutely right. And we talk on this broadcast about how Erdogan has built a thousand-room palace to house all of the leaders and their cabinets of the uh, 57, or now they're saying 61, Islamic nations. When they get to 61, I wonder if they're, if they're including the ISIS caliphates in Syria and Iraq. And I say that only half in jest because this guy, Tan Riverdi, Erdogan's military advisor, uh, is well known for having supported al-Qaeda, and Turkey has been their lifeline from the very beginning of uh, ISIS coming to the Middle East.
0: You know, what's interesting to me is that there seems to be a convergence of three particular nations, Russia, Turkey, and Iran, coming together. Uh, They, of course, were in opposition to the big conference in Warsaw, with 60 nations gathered there, sponsored by the United States. But Russia, Iran, Turkey getting together, this sounds pretty suspicious.
1: Well, and and they got together for a, quote, summit. At the same time, the United States was meeting with Arab nations, Arab Gulf countries, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and the UAE, and others, in Warsaw to essentially rally a posse against the Islamic State in Iran. So you have these rival groups. The interesting thing is that, you know, Russia, Iran, and Turkey... There are many things that divide them, but today what unites them is Syria. They, they all would like to see an end to most of ISIS. Turkey, Turkey wants to keep some parts of the Muslim Brotherhood wings of ISIS uh, alive, but the Iranians would like to kill those. So even there they have their divergences. But they are trying to forge a common uh, policy and a military alliance against the United States and our allies. And I've got to tell you, they're losing, Jimmy. They are losing. There, there was audio from the Warsaw Conference that was leaked to the media of a private meeting with the foreign ministers of many of these Arab countries, Bahrain in particular, Saudi Arabia, with Israel, with the Israeli prime minister. And both the Bahrainis and the Saudi foreign minister were saying that the threat that we face from the Islamic regime in Tehran, in Iran, far surpasses any kind of... Strategic threat we might have faced from Israel and is far more important as an issue to deal with than Palestine, so-called Palestine, has ever been. So I think things historically are going against this Russia, Iran, Turkey alliance, but they are definitely not going down without a fight.
0: Well, let me follow up on that leaked audio that you were talking about, and again, bringing to our attention, seems like every week we talk about a World War Three threat or an alert. Iran warning against any United States invasion of Iran. It could spark World War III. Talk about that a bit.
1: Well, and this is the the so-called moderate foreign minister of Iran, Javad Zarif, who goes to Munich, it to a security conference in Europe to essentially threaten the United States and threaten Israel with massive retaliation, including nuclear retaliation, should either side launch a war on Iran. Now, Jimmy, let's face facts. The Israelis have been attacking Iranian forces in Syria for the past two to three years. They have really delivered massive blows to them, and they've actually forced the Iranis to back away from the Israeli border, from the Golan Heights, and to uh, back away from massive military bases, which they had in the beginning inside Syria, because those bases are big targets. Now what the Iranis are doing, they're downsizing, and they're multiplying, so they have smaller bases, and they're spread all out uh, across Syria, further away from the Israeli border. The biggest thing that they're doing today is sending GPS suitcases into Iran, small, hard to detect, where they're going to retrofit older, unguided rockets called the Zelzal-2. They are hoping to turn ten or 15,000 of these rockets into precision-guided munitions, with which they can attack Israel. The Israelis are aware of it, and they say, you know, before we used to be tracking these huge convoys, bringing Iranian weapons through Iraq and into Syria. Today, we're tracking suitcases.
0: Yeah, and that's being used also by Hezbollah there in, as I understand it, Lebanon as their getting these kits to put on their missiles focused on Israel as well. Meanwhile, in the Persian Gulf, you have Iran. They've launched another large-scale maritime war games there in the Persian Gulf. That happens, what, every other month? <laughs> it seems like we're always talking about it.
1: That's right. But this one is kind of interesting because they're starting in the Strait of Hormuz, which is that narrow waterway in between Iran and the United Arab Emirates, and then going out into the international waters of the Indian Ocean. And for the first time ever, they're going to test the ability of their submarines to launch cruise missiles, submarine-launched cruise missiles. This is something the Iranians, a capability they have claimed to have for a number of years. But to my understanding, this is the first time that they're actually going to try, at least, to demonstrate that capability. A submarine-launched cruise missile is Very dangerous, potentially very deadly. Uh, These missiles are virtually impossible to detect or to deter or to shoot down because they hover right across the, the waves. So, if they are actually able to launch a cruise missile from a submarine, that is a major new military capability of the Iranian regime.
0: Ken, let me cover two stories as we conclude. Israel looking for war as the United States seeks to overthrow Iran. Meanwhile, Iran says they cannot rule out a war with israel put those two together and respond
1: well the iranians are responding as they always do to increased pressure from israel and from the united states and in this case it's economic pressure diplomatic pressure from the united states in warsaw and military pressure from israel as we've seen in syria so the iranians respond with bombast with with threats and uh, you know they say they're going to attack israel they're going to wipe israel off the map this is what they have done for the past 30 years Jimmy, I am not particularly concerned about it because the United States and Israel are having tremendous success in rallying the Arab regimes in the area to their side. And that is a new development. That's something that didn't happen in the past. And I think the the Iranians are going to think twice before they start launching missiles against Israel or the United States with the Arabs as well on the side of Israel and the United
0: States. And that is a very interesting coalition, the United States, Israel, and many of the Islamic nations, especially those Arab nations. Ken Timmerman, the man who covers geopolitical activities for us on a weekly basis. We need him. You need to hear what he has to say each and every time we have him behind this broadcast microphone here at the broadcast table. Ken, thank you so much. We'll talk again next week, buddy.
2: My pleasure, Jimmy, as always. God bless.
0: We're going to take a break. When we come back, a Middle East News update. David Dolan standing by. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. As promised, David Dolan standing by. He's going to give us his Middle East news update. A couple of regions in this world that we want to keep a constant focus on. That would be the European Union with John Rude. He's up next at the bottom of the hour. But David Dolan now to give us insight into all the current events unfolding in a unique part of the world, the stage where the end times will come to complete culmination, a fulfillment of the prophetic scenario that is found in God's Word. David, let's talk about the prime minister. He's off to meet with Vladimir Putin in Moscow to discuss Syria, as I understand it. Or is there a kink in that? I heard that maybe he's going to be talking to Putin on the telephone. Which is it?
4: Well, he was supposed to travel there on Thursday, Jimmy, and uh, canceled that because he was in negotiations with several small uh, right-wing parties to join his Likud bloc after polls show him slipping badly behind the new blue-white alliance of uh, Benny Gantz's party and Yair Lapid's party. So um, he had to stay home because Friday was the deadline to present the United List to the election officials Also, on Thursday, Putin was giving his State of the Union address in Moscow, where he was talking about his new missiles that can fly nine times the speed of sound and hit the United States and all this sort of thing. So there was also speculation that Netanyahu didn't want to be seen talking to Putin on the same day that he was basically threatening the United States with nuclear obliteration. But they do say they're going to reschedule the talks, although, like you said, it may just be on the phone the u.s. decision uh, announced on thursday to keep 200 soldiers in syria is being very much welcomed in israel and that was one of the topics that netanyahu was most concerned about is how would russia react to the u.s entire pullout as it was expected to happen you know what guarantees could israel get that iran would stop firing missiles and rockets from syrian territory that sort of thing those are his main issues but those have uh, taken a, a back seat at the moment to his political problems, Netanyahu's political problems inside of Israel. So, but he definitely still wants to talk to the Russian leader. That's very important to him.
0: Well, let's talk about the prime minister's political problems. I mean, is it a viable possibility he could lose the vote for re-election as prime minister?
4: It's very viable, Jimmy. Uh, three opinion polls were published on Thursday evening uh, in Israel, and all of them showed this new, they call it the Blue-White Alliance. That's the Benny Gantz's new Resilience Israel Party with Yair Lapid's uh, Yesh Atid, which means there's a future party, and he already has, I think, 12 seats in the current Knesset. P does. The polls show that uh, the Blue-White Alliance may pick up 35 to 36 seats, with the Likud getting only 26 to maybe 32 seats. The polls are, you know, a little different each one, but they all show the Likud falling behind now. Now, there's a significant point to be made, though, Jimmy, because this Blue-White Alliance, they may take that many seats, more than the Likud, but the left-wing block in the Knesset And the right-wing bloc, as they're called, Uh, that's the overall important thing. And it still shows that the right-wing parties, now that does include one party uh, that's offshoot of the Koch party from years ago. It's a very radical right-wing party in Israel. It would have to include that in the government, but the overall polls still show them ahead about 62 to 58. And the Blue-White Alliance would have to rely on 10 to 12 Arab seats to stay in power. They wouldn't join the government, probably, but they would vote with this left-wing alliance. But it does definitely look for the first time in many, many years, like uh, Bibi Netanyahu's time as prime minister may be coming to an end, and that would make Benny Gantz the prime minister. But of course, this alliance was just formed, Jimmy, and the polls always show a bump right after that, and some are saying it'll be more even in the end, but uh, dramatic developments indeed.
0: If you had to predict right now, would you predict that Netanyahu would fall or be reelected?
4: It's going to be close, Jimmy. Very, very close. Benny Gantz, a former chief of staff, very popular man in Israel. Yair Lapid, a former television commentator. His father, Tommy Lapid, was a longtime Knesset member and member of several governments. So they've both been at the top echelons, and uh, Moshe Yah the number. Three in that party, also the former defense minister under Bibi Netanyahu. He left the Likud a year and a half ago and then joined this new alliance. He's well thought of, also a former chief of staff. So a lot of military experience in this new uh, band, the blue-white band. Of course, that name comes from the colors of the Israeli flag, blue and white. Also, the uh, Jewish prayer shawls have those colors. Uh, A lot of Israelis are tired of the right-wing alliance because it includes the religious parties, and they feel that uh, this more left-wing alliance would allow more religious freedom in the country, civil marriage, uh, more transportation on Shabbat that sort of thing. And that is, all the polls show, very popular with the majority of the voters in Israel, only about 30 percent of the Israeli public are uh, practicing Jews, Orthodox Jews. So we'll see, Jimmy. It's going to be really, really close. Very interesting to follow, that's for sure.
0: Meanwhile, the Palestinians are clashing with uh, the police up on the Temple Mount, and it's a situation there at the Golden Gate, the Eastern Gate. It's been closed. Uh, Tell me what's going on.
4: Well, yes, the new Palestinian waqf that's the group that controls the Temple Mount, has been expanded recently to 18 members, and several uh, new members are from the Palestinian Authority for the first time, the ruling government, uh, Mahmoud Abbas's government. They are now demanding that that eastern gate be reopened as an exclusive Muslim prayer center. I don't know if you've been there, Jimmy. I imagine you've been outside of it. I haven't been inside, but I've seen pictures. It's quite a large chamber inside. And the Israelis uh, heard these statements they've been making for the past couple weeks, and they put up some new uh, metal fences around it. Well, the Palestinians this week rioted up there and tore down the fences, ripped them apart with the crowbars, etc. The police came up, and as you said, there were clashes. Now, Friday, yesterday, it was fairly calm up there, but the Israeli police were everywhere, and they arrested 60. 60- Palestinian uh, Muslim activists that they were known to be asking for rioting and promoting this sort of thing today. So it was fairly quiet, but there was trouble in Silwan, a nearby neighborhood. There was a, a Molotov cocktail thrown in an Israeli patrol uh, that on Wednesday night. And again on Friday, there was rioting down in the Gaza Strip. A 12 year old Palestinian boy was killed. They were hurling uh, firebombs across the fence at Israeli security forces. They've restarted sending these fiery kites across the border balloons set several fires this week so activity stepping up there And the Palestinian Authority did warn this week, Jimmy, that in the run-up to the revelation of President Trump's peace plan, the deal of the century, he's calling it, that there will be more and more clashes erupting, especially over Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, which they believe, or they say at least, Israel's going to try to take control of as part of this peace plan. We'll have to wait and see about that. But uh, uh, definitely tensions are rising, and of course the election process is always a time of extra tensions
0: as well. You know, it's interesting what al-Sisi, who is the president of Egypt, had to say at the Munich Security Conference. He said that the Palestinians are the root of Middle East instability. That seems to be the case with what you've just given us.
4: Well, the root of instability in Israel, definitely, inside of Israel, but overall in the region I think al-Sisi would agree with Netanyahu and with the Saudis and with others that Iran is the main source of instability in recent years, as they've been... Well, they're now having a major war exercise in the Persian Gulf, the, right near the Straits of Hormuz, uh, around 100 vessels taking part, and they're firing for the first time this cruise ballistic uh, missile that they uh, tested on land. They fired one from one of their submarines. They have several of those uh, in these exercises. Those are going on till Sunday. That sent the price of oil around the world way up, Jimmy, because they're just demonstrating, once again, as they threaten that they can close the Straits of Hormuz off to traffic. All the oil coming out of there could be shut off. Of course, The U.S. has major forces there, and A U.S. commander said, if they fire on any of our ships, there will no longer be an Iranian navy. We will destroy it. So a lot of tension there. But the Palestinian issue is always the one they go back to in the whole region. Why? Because it does unite the Sunni Muslims and the Shiite Muslims. They all hate Israel. They all hate the Jewish state. Of course, Egypt has ties and Jordan has ties. But I'm talking about the average person on the street and certainly the Islamic faith. Both branches of it share that hatred, really, of Israel as a Jewish state and certainly want to see Jerusalem returned exclusively to Muslim control. The question is, would it be Shiite Muslims under Iran, or would it be the Sunni Muslims who mainly live there that would take it, and we would see a continuation of war between them if, indeed, uh, Israel were out of the picture. But that's, as you mentioned, and the Bible states quite clearly, that's not going to happen despite their desires and their moves continuing to ultimately destroy Israel.
0: Well, with Bible in hand, we look at the prophetic scenario for the end times. And with David Dolan at this broadcast table, we can look at the political activities in the Middle East, a key region for our understanding of the last days. That's why David's always here on a weekly basis. David, thank you so very much, my good friend. We'll talk again next week.
4: Glad to do it, Jimmy. God bless
0: We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll go to the European Union. John Rude standing by with his update. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today.
3: Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible Prophecy Student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general, and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents, to set the stage for Bible Prophecy to be Fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C., and is available on DVD or as a 10 hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on bookstore, or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com.
0: Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Jimmy DeYoung here at Broadcast Central. This is the International Headquarters for Prophecy Today. Now, we broadcast on networks across the United States, but then around the world on the Internet. With our broadcast partners, we endeavor to give the information to those eavesdropping or listening to the conversations that we're having with these partners who can help us understand current events. And then at the end of the broadcast, I'll bring it all together when we take a look at the book. The man who has lived in Brussels, Belgium for over 30 years is the man we go to for the European Union update. We're going to start this half hour, and by the way, right after we talk with John Rood, we'll talk with Don DeYoung. He's going to talk about evolution. Charles Darwin, had a birthday that uh, many people in this world celebrated last week. We're going to talk about evolution, how to deal with it if you're a Christian parent. And then there's some lights, interesting lights, some type of phenomena taking place in the heavenlies. Don will bring that to our attention. Then we'll go to the Pentagon. Colonel Bob McGinnis standing by. We're going to talk about AI artificial intelligence warfare. So keep the dial set. This is going to be a very informative half hour. John, let's talk about the European continent itself. They're doing everything they possibly can to try to legitimize Iran's regime. And that seems to me to be economic more than political. What are your thoughts?
2: Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. The European Union, you know, is just, Seems to care about the nuclear agreement because of the trade ties and the uh, economic factors, and so it really has to turn an eye and pretend that the regime is uh, legitimate. Iran's now they have their fortieth um, anniversary of the regime, and they still really haven't stepped up to uh, many of the issues. Of course, that we know uh, supporting terror, et cetera, et cetera. One of the developments that can really cause concern is that Europe's highest court, which is the European Court of Human Rights, has officially adapted the Iranian definition or idea of blasphemy. So it's it's really an Islamic uh, statement that they have adopted. So Europe has not really ever stood up to Iran, but now there's as well the pressures uh, from the United States. When Vice President uh, Mike Pence spoke at Munich Security Conference, gave greetings from President Trump, and not even one single person clapped. And so Europe has really chosen this uh, appeasement, as we've seen. And Jimmy, you know, I would say our analysis of this situation with Europe and Iran has really been right on.
0: Yeah, and that's important for us to understand in this particular time in history. And that brings up this next item I want to talk to you about. Because of Brexit, would that mean that if indeed Brexit does uh, become successful for the British Empire, that uh, that would lead to a European Union army, or would it not?
2: I can see uh, a point that this could go both ways. The pattern has been that these types of integrations are done on the way to political union. They've tried very, very hard to form some type of EU army, even defining what it is can't be agreed upon. So... I would say the fact that the United Kingdom is leaving the European Union, this is leaving a hole in the military. The best idea is the two largest militaries, France and the UK, would keep strong ties. But the EU at the helm, uh, they could take advantage of this present structure and focus on the federal EU now that the UK is gone. So I would say that the the army will come, the big question is, is before or after what precedes a political union, which we know is coming for certain.
0: That's interesting. The army will come before or after. That's what we're looking at. Just a brief statement, uh, this collapse of the European Union superstate could really paralyze Brussels after the May elections, could it not?
2: Yes, the population has really had it with the EU working on becoming a superstate and so the anti EU parties they want to get back to democracy they want to get back to the Europe of nations and not just a federal system and of course the democratic deficit that's led to the superstate um the european elections now it's the only part that's ever elected is the members of the parliament and so 30% of many of the Seats can go to Euroskeptic parties, so that's going to work against the traditional EU uh, directives. So people are saying this is the beginning of the end. Um, I wouldn't say that. I would say this is the beginning of the EU changing face and look for the moves that there'll still be a political union and strength towards that, but in another form. And if it's less countries well, then all the better for them. They won't give up on the idea of political union. Eventually we will have 10.
0: And exactly because I do believe, John believes, and others that the European Union, the infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire. will stay on top of this story with John Root. John, thank you so much. Talk again to you next week.
2: My pleasure.
0: Well, my good friend and namesake Don DeYoung is going to join us right now. Don is the head of the science department at Grace College in Winona Lake, Indiana. And when there's something scientific I want to talk about or non-scientific, we go to Don. But Don, I hear you're off to the Grand Canyon tomorrow. What's your trip all about?
5: Well, that's correct, Jimmy. Uh, My family and I uh, enjoy backpacking, and so we're going to do some uh, hiking in the Grand Canyon. Now, uh, we're doing this in February. It's a little bit early. There's snow on the the rim, so it's kind of hardcore camping, but a great time to see creation.
0: Yeah, to see creation. And is not the Grand Canyon one of the great proofs in this world, uh, that creation is real and evolution is totally wrong.
5: Well, that's certainly true. The, can- the canyon, the Grand Canyon is a be- beautiful place, but it also shows um destruction, it shows the results of the flood, the aftermath and the sedimentary layers at the same time very scenic.
0: It is a very beautiful location. I remember taking a 23-hour vacation with my wife when we were driving across the country. We stopped there and we said, what can we see in about 23 hours and uh, really enjoy the place here, the Grand Canyon? He said, go to IMAX. You'll see it all in about an hour. So that's what we did. But I envy you and your family doing some backpacking out there in that part of the world, especially at this time of the year. Don, I sent you a couple of articles. One was about Darwin's, Charles Darwin's birthday and the other about sprites. Now, I'm not talking about the Coca-Cola drink. I'm talking about phenomenon in the heavenlies. I want to get to both of them. Let's talk about Charles Darwin, his birthday last week. Evolution is what he brought forth in this world. It was an evolutionary theory. And could you just take a moment as we begin our discussion and explain this theory?
5: Well, certainly, uh, Jimmy uh, uh, Darwin was born on February 12, back in 1809. Part of part of history. It's not that he uh, originated evolution; he popularized it. It had already been around for a while, and the time was right for it to take over. You know, evolution is a. I, I see it as a counterfeit. It just goes down the road of talking about um, origins and how things developed. Uh, aside from, from Scripture. And not to put down those who favor it. Uh, they're not dummies. It's a whole intellectual area. It, it's wrong. It, it counters Scripture. But it is very inviting to people who do turn their back on supernatural creation. The idea is life somehow spontaneously uh, originates. Then over time, mutations occur to life, and it changes, it improves, and then natural selection sorts it out. It's quite a theory. It's You can see how people get uh, swallowed up by it. Of course, there's major problems all along the way. We all have the same data, Jimmy, and uh, it's just different interpretations. For us, we clearly see creation. The other side uh, continues to champion the idea of um, uh spontaneous, accidental changes over time. I might say one of the greatest evidences we have on the creation viewpoint is the fossil record. Darwin himself realized that there were problems with fossils because we don't have all of these intermediate uh, steps. The missing links are still missing. As far back as you go, back to when fossils formed during the flood, we see distinct kinds, the separate kinds, categories that God established at the beginning.
0: You know, we have both mentioned the word theory in our discussion already, and not fact, the evolutionary theory, not fact. But when you look at it, the Bible is by faith. It's not fact either. Problems with that, or how do we coincide the two together and then come with the proper conclusion?
5: Well, certainly faith is involved. When you go back in time talking about how life originated or developed, it's, it's kind of a special category of science. You can't go in the laboratory and reproduce it. It's historical. It's, uh, it's, it's looking at what we have. And uh, there is faith either in uh, chance accidental happenings or a creator who's behind it all. And we certainly see the strength of the creation viewpoint.
0: Would, uh, and you mentioned just a moment ago, the fossil record, would that be their main problem in evolutionary thought, or would it be the hundreds and millions and billions of years that you need for all of this to happen, which would be the main problem?
5: Well, certainly all of the above. Um, The time question is another area. Uh, I think there's strong evidence that uh, the Earth The moon, the universe is not as old as they say, and that rules out evolution right away, even if you have lots of time, of course, it still wouldn't happen, but uh, good evidence for a recent supernatural uh, creation. Uh, the fossils, they continue to look for these uh, missing links, and there are a lot of interesting things in the past. It looks almost, Jimmy, like we have lost over 90% of all of the plants and mm. animals that God created back at the beginning. Mm. Uh, we are I think that speaks of you know preserving what we have left. That's been the whole history of Earth, losing some of the interesting life that God had created in the past.
0: Well, let's take that standard in Genesis chapter 1. And, uh, you know, we're not going to take an hour or two to develop this, but in a couple of moments, and I hope that's not too difficult for you, I don't think it would be, uh, can you just tell me why the standard Genesis 1 is reality, even though it is taken by faith?
5: Well, Genesis 1 uh, speaks to us. It's um, God's Word. It's uh, permanent, you know, science. The ideas of man roll on by. They're all temporary, even the big picture of the whole universe. A few decades ago, they talked about the steady state theory. It's been replaced by the Big Bang Theory, and I don't know what will come next, but that will go on by as well. The beginning was supernatural. You know, the creation week is holy ground. It's beyond explaining, and because of that then, any natural origin theory is wrong by definition, because we can't explain the supernatural. So I think that's the important point, that God's Word stands true. It stood the test of time, and as we all know, archaeology and every other area we look at backs up the uh, the truthfulness of Scripture. Science is good. Science has given us lots of products, lots of inventions, lots of things that God uh, put in there for our well-being, But there are certainly limitations, especially when you talk about the history of how it all came to be.
0: You know, the educational operations across the world, and particular here in the United States, puts evolution in that as a fact. They don't call it a theory. They say that's the absolute science that helps us to understand where we have come from. What would you say to those Christian parents that may have children in secular schools and maybe some in even Christian schools? How should they deal with this thing called evolution and uh, move forward to teach their children the truth from the Word of God?
5: Yes, it seems like uh, we are all just treading water surrounded by evolutionary ideas in the media, in in, in the news, and it just keeps bombarding us. Well, I would say that uh, parents uh, need to make sure that their uh, uh, children are are well-grounded in uh, the biblical uh, uh, worldview, and uh, either in the classroom or next-door neighbor or wherever, um, we all certainly come up against those who hold different views. I would say to students two things. First of all, I would say don't be difficult to a teacher who's going in in a different direction, uh, that is, the teacher in a room, in a classroom is still um, in control and, uh, and uh, deserves respect. So don't be difficult. Don't stamp a foot and walk out of the classroom. That's not a good way to influence other people. And the other idea besides uh, don't be difficult would be to do your best. You know, if a student is uh, being taught a section on evolution, go ahead and learn it. Uh, it iron sharpens irons. And if this student has a background in biblical creation, he'll see the weaknesses of evolution. It's a good way to learn both sides. Do your best. Maybe even present a paper on your creation view. I guess what I'm saying is when it comes to uh, uh, those on the other side, the idea of uh, building bridges and reaching out to them rather than, uh, you know, opposing uh, every step of the way.
0: Yeah, be a good Christian testimony to those who may oppose what you understand the Bible to teach? Well, that's the first item that I wanted to cover. The first issue. Let's talk about these heavenly phenomena that are taking place. They're calling them sprites, and it's the same way you pronounce that drink—the sprite, the soft drink. Can you explain what a sprite is and what is taking place out there?
5: Well, certainly. Uh, there have been reports on bright lights in the sky, and uh, uh, especially seen by by satellites. Uh, Sprites have been known for a while. Those are a a form, not really lightning, but they're electrical discharges actually on the top side of thunderclouds. So they're, instead of coming down to the earth, they're actually going upward from the clouds. And uh, it's like a high-altitude Similar to lightning, and uh, they're colorful, and uh, we don't usually see them, but uh, there they are above the clouds. So it's just um, the, the power of electricity and moving electrons and the kind of currents that get involved up there. You know, it's one more phenomenon in the atmosphere. As we know, even the weather is complicated, hard to predict, hard to understand and sprites are just one more interesting phenomena. Now you need those, otherwise things get charged up too much, so it's a way to uh, we reach equilibrium and straighten out the pattern and get the weather back to normal. Mm. So that's the idea of sprites, uh, a high-altitude lightning. Now the other uh, object that's been talked about lately are, are bright lights that are not associated with clouds. And that's kind of interesting, and that's gotten some people wondering uh, what is seen, and they're kind of rare, but a very bright flash of light. It sounds to me, Jamie, that these um, recently reported lights are uh, they're meteors. Uh, the name we give, uh, something that gets extra bright, is called a boloid, where you have a, a, a rock in space, and there's a lot of debris around the solar system. It can get swept up in our atmosphere as we circle the sun. And then it heats up, falling through the high upper atmosphere. And uh, if, it, if it explodes from the heat, then it becomes a very bright flash of light. It vaporizes. It's gone. It's not harmful. But then when these things show up or maybe are caught on a camera, um, they look like a, a, a strange light. But not a UFO, really a, a fireball, uh, just um, uh, an, an object um, that's flaming out in our air.
0: We're talking about the sprites or the phenomena in the heavenlies, as Don has just brought to our attention. Now, this is not a fulfillment of Joel 2, nor Revelation chapter 6, which talks about supernatural activity taking place in the heavenlies after the rapture and during the tribulation period. Now, those things are going to happen. That's an absolute. Could these be a precursor to something like that?
5: Well um certainly, and uh, we have um, the you know the the scripture prophecies of things uh, in the in the last days the sun darkened, the stars falling, the powers of heaven shaken. that sounds like a time when uh, the sky is dramatically changed. Hmm. I think anything we're seeing now, such as sprites or or bright lights, yeah it may be a shadow of things to come, but I think uh, these end time events will be much more dramatic, on a much higher scale, and will clearly be um, supernatural, a, a wrapping up of the current uh, system in the sky. Uh, yeah, the, the minor items we see today, just uh, maybe brief glimpses of uh, something more dramatic to come in God's time.
0: In God's time. What an opportune statement to close our conversation with. Don, thank you for your explanation and your examination of uh, what we talked about, the two issues, uh, Darwin's theory of evolution and phenomenon in the sky. By the way, have a great trip with your family to the Grand Canyon. We'll talk again real soon.
5: Thank you, Jimmy. Thanks for the visit.
0: Very interesting report from Don DeYoung on evolution and how Christian parents should deal with this as it relates to training up their children, according to God's Word and how it relates to creation. And those lights in the heavenlies, indicators of what will happen in the future. And I don't think too distant future either. Well, Colonel Bob McGinnis works at the Pentagon. He works in the area of strategic planning. He travels, he teaches at the War College there in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And we're going to Bob right now because of a couple of books that he has written, but also an executive order that the president signed earlier this week. Uh, Donald Trump, the president, signed an executive order uh, requiring uh, dealing with uh, uh, artificial intelligence AI Now Bob I want to ask you why he had that executive order in place to sign but first uh, for those who may be neophytes in our audience, explain what AI artificial intelligence is
6: the, the big thing that comes to mind is probably the transformer movies you know these robots that can think on their own and, and do, Uh, the bidding of uh, their masters. Uh, It is like science fiction, but it's a reality today. It's the manipulation of all environments, whether it's in space or uh, it's inside your body with a particular type of surgical instrument. Uh, It's the use of big data, massive amounts of information that allows the master of that information to manipulate in cyberspace. Uh, It's about a host of things in harnessing the domain of the cyber world uh, in a way that can be nefarious or it can be good for mankind. uh, It's a dangerous area. And why the president had an executive order is quite simple. Uh, The president and his national security strategy, his national defense strategy, made it very clear that we are facing near-peer adversaries that are very serious about changing the dynamics of the world, and that's China and Russia. China, uh, President Xi has made it a priority of his country, not only to overcome the United States economically, but militarily. And he has set all his uh, federal government and the military and all industry in China focused on the goal of obtaining artificial intelligence control, a hegemon on artificial intelligence into the future. it's probably uh, focused on about 2030, uh, 11 years from now, uh, that they anticipate being dominant. And that's going to uh, redefine the world in ways like fire redefined the world when it was first discovered.
0: Bob, it sounds like AI is going to fit into problems for our national security, what you're telling me right now. So uh, this is another very important reason for the executive order, is it not?
6: Well, it is. And that's why the Pentagon is seized with that reality. Of course, I deal with that sort of stuff on a routine basis. I know, you know, kind of where we are and where we aren't. Even by public statements coming out of the senior people in the building where I'm standing today, Jimmy, they acknowledge that uh, we've fallen behind on very vital capabilities. You know, just two days ago, Vladimir Putin there in Moscow made his state of the nation address. To uh, a large crowd. Uh, and he talked about the modern, sophisticated weaponry, the hypersonics, and the drones and so forth that Moscow is developing. Well, Moscow is doing pretty well, uh, but it's the Chinese, I would argue, uh, that are really becoming very heady and very capable. And of course, any technology that we have, they're stealing left and right with their thousands of spies that are in this country. I say in my book, Alliance of Evil, that there are 16 indicators of the new dual Cold War. I see them every day, Jimmy, and one of those is stealing our technology, uh, and they're very good at it. And uh, artificial intelligence is the cutting edge and the thing that I'm most worried about.
0: Yeah, AI on the battlefield is of great concern, but what about AI in space? Everybody seems to be focusing now more so on space and warfare from there. What about that?
6: Well, the president's standing up a space command, and it's a direct result of what the Chinese and the Russians are doing. We have reason to believe the Russians have deployed a space weapon, uh, a satellite uh, with capability of destroying other satellites that is in low orbit around the globe, and it moves from one satellite to another—not their satellites necessarily, but our satellites. And of course, both Russia and China appreciate the fact that. We are dependent, solely dependent, given the high technology of this country, upon the installation and the constellation of satellites that circle our globe. You know, our GPS and our cars, our iPhones depend upon that, our banking structure, our commerce. Everything that we are as a modern nation depends very much on uh, those satellites, and yet uh, they are perfecting and already have anti-satellite systems and are expanding rapidly into their space. So that's just part of this big umbrella that the Chinese and the Russians are pursuing.
0: Bob, you seem to be on top of this AI situation as it relates to the battlefield space and in normal daily life as well. they have written several books. Give us the names of the books that deal with this issue and, of course, where we can get them.
6: Well, they're available on Amazon.com or Defender Publishing, Jimmy. And Future War, 2015, I wrote that, and I see it every day being played out. And, of course, my book of last year, Alliance of Evil, which deals with the new dual Cold War, the things that are happening about us, whether it's economically, militarily, geopolitically, uh, even the proxy wars that we're beginning to see in Ukraine or Syria uh, or even in Venezuela, and elsewhere in the world. These are all evidence of what I say are the evidence of the new dual Cold War we're fighting with Russia and China. It's very serious, and I hope uh, the United States, and I do believe the Trump administration recognizes it.
0: You know, folks, we deal with the future. Prophetically, what's going to happen right here on Prophecy Today We bring Colonel Bob McGinnis to this broadcast table to help explain how AI is a part of that future should the Lord tarry his return to the earth. Bob, thank you so very much, my good friend. Appreciate it. We'll talk again soon. Thank you, Jimmy. We're going to take a break, and when we come back on the other side of the top of the hour, David James is going to join us at the broadcast table. We're going to talk about Christian millennials who don't believe in evangelism, they think it's wrong. You don't want to miss that conversation. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Jimmy DeYoung. And at my broadcast table upcoming in just a moment will be David James. We have a weekly conversation focused on an issue that is key to the lifestyle for each and every Christian on this earth today. We'll get to that discussion. We're going to be talking about Christian millennials who believe evangelism is wrong. Well, that's not what the Word of God says. Their thoughts are contradictory to God's command for us to go out and tell everybody about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, giving them an opportunity to come to know him as Lord and Savior. In fact, Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says, The only reason that Bible prophecy has not been fulfilled with the rapture of the church, the tribulation period to follow is that he, the Lord Jesus Christ, is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to know him as Lord and Savior. He said he's not slack concerning his promise. He is coming. We need to be evangelizing. It'll be a great conversation with David James in a moment, right here on Prophecy Today. Well, I would love for you to go to my poll question. It's on my website, prophecytoday.com there on the left-hand column, if you'll scroll down, you'll find the poll question. Let me give it to you, if you will. Are current events, events that fit into the prophetic scenario found in the Bible, a good indicator of the fact that today we are getting very close to God's prophetic plan for the future? Now that's the poll question. Please answer it after the broadcast. Stay tuned. I want you to hear the rest of what's going to be said in this segment of Prophecy Today weekend, but then go to the website prophecytoday.com. On the home page on the left-hand column, you'll find this poll question. Do answer the question. It's key for us to be able to understand what you're learning. From everything else we have to say here on Prophecy Today weekend. By the way, when you're at the website, go over to Joshua Travel. Joshua Travel gives you all the tours that we are going to have this year about six or seven of them, with opportunities to go into the land of the Bible in Israel, and then also to visit Jordan and the unique city, the one of the seven wonders of the world, Petra there, that impregnable city. We'll also be at the Red Sea, a lovely place for us to spend some time as we're traveling through the land of the Bible from top to bottom in the state of Israel, then in southern Jordan. A couple of the tours are going to take us on over to Turkey. We'll go to the seven churches of Asia Minor. They're talked about there in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Well, visit all seven sites. You'll be able to see the archaeological remains. In fact, in Ephesus, those archaeological remains, probably the best archaeological artifacts in all of the world. You want to find out about that trip. And then we conclude that trip, if you'd like to, by going to Rome, Italy. You know, Rome is the next most important prophetic city in all of God's plan for the end times. You can find out about all these tours that are going to be in place for this year, led by Prophecy Today. Jim Jr., my son Rick, both Jim Jr., and my sons, and then myself. If we can make it over there, you know, the old man's getting pretty old, but he may be able to make it. We'd love to have you come and visit these locations with us. And remember, on the website, we put up daily news giving you updates, both written right there on the home page and the center fold of the home page. And we do an audio prophetic perspective. On All of these items as well. Prophecy Today is the place to go to stay abreast of what is happening in this world so you can recognize the urgency of the moment and understand where we are in God's plan. Again, that website address, prophecytoday.com. We now bring to these microphones David James for our weekly conversation. This week, we catch up with David after two weeks of teaching in Uganda and on the road, ready to make his way back home once again. David, journey's mercies as you travel. Well, thanks so much, Jimmy. It is a long trip
7: home, close to 30 hours door to door. And as much as I always look forward to my trips and love teaching students around the world, I'm always glad to be heading home as well. People often comment that I must really love traveling, which really isn't true, but I do love teaching, and so traveling uh, these long distances sort of becomes uh, a necessary evil. And as always, I have had a great time here in Uganda teaching God's plan through the ages and signs, wonders, and the charismatic movement, and I also had the opportunity to speak in the local church here, as well as in a couple of colleges and Word of Life clubs, and uh, we've already
0: set up dates for next year couple of weeks ago, David, many news outlets, including Christianity Today and even the Jerusalem Post, reported on new research by the Barna Group indicating that many Christian millennials were against evangelizing those in other religions. The title of the Christianity Today
7: article is Half of Millennial Christians Say It's Wrong to Evangelize, and has the tagline, Survey finds young believers want others to know about Jesus, they just don't want to speak up about it. So the first thing that came to my mind was, who are these Christians in terms of overall theology, and are all those who identify as Christians in the survey actually born again, or do many of them just identify as Christians? But as it turns out, 94% of them believe that the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to come to know Jesus. Then the opening paragraph of that article reads, Millennials used to be the group that churches and ministries were angling to evangelize. Now all grown up and poised to overtake baby boomers as a largest generation, they're the ones doing the evangelizing, or at least they should be. The article goes on to say uh, they're more than twice as likely as their parents and grandparents to say that it's wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith Uh, oddly enough the survey found that despite the reluctance of Millennials to evangelize they consider themselves good evangelists and 96% even believe that witnessing for Jesus is part of being a Christian They just don't want to potentially offend others by attempting to convert them from whatever they may believe to biblical Christianity, meaning to become born-again believers in Jesus Christ.
0: David, maybe it would be helpful to explain what we mean by millennials, as well as baby boomers and Gen Xers.
7: I'll just quickly give the years involved for the different generations as currently defined in general you first have the G.I. generation or the World War II generation and those would have been born between 1900 and 1924. Then they call the next generation the silent generation partly because a lot of them grew up during the depression era. This would be from 1925 to 1945 uh, although I don't think I would characterize you as silent Jimmy. Uh, Then you have baby boomers which are those born from 1946 to 1965. Uh, Gen X are those from 1965 to 1979. Then you have the millennials who were born between 1980 and uh, 2000. So that would make up those who are from about 18 years old to uh, their late 30s. Uh, So that would include my grandkids and your grandkids. And then you have from 2000 to the present, which is called Gen Z, or the centennial
0: generation. David, what does the research suggest is the reason for this reluctance to share the gospel with millennials?
7: From what I can tell, the reluctance comes, at least in part, from a fear of offending people. And I think this is connected to another response on the survey where 40% of millennials believe that if someone disagrees with you, it means that they're judging you. So there seems to be some misplaced emotional sensitivity affecting this uh, whole issue. And if you know someone else has a different belief system and worldview than you do, then you already know going into it that they disagree with you. So that means, rightly or wrongly, you're already feeling judged before they ever get started if that's what your perspective is. I would also say that we can tend to project onto others our own feelings and way of looking at things, and what this means is that if millennials don't like for people to disagree with them, then they could be judging others for those beliefs, and in turn, they assume others uh, must be judging them in the same way.
0: Would you say that living under the cloud of political correctness in our culture today may be making this problem worse.
7: I don't think there's any doubt about it, honestly. Uh, Sometimes we hear the term snowflake, which is really a negative sort of mean-spirited term that I don't generally use, but I think the idea it conveys has some validity, which is that even the slightest bit of heat causes a snowflake to melt. So I think that years and years of growing up in a PC culture where everyone is so easily offended and has an emotional meltdown... Uh, that everyone today is walking on eggshells and basically afraid to say anything that might offend someone else.
0: You know, this thinking seems to suggest that millennials may be holding out the hope that those in other religions can be saved by those religions.
7: I think that's probably true, and maybe to a large degree even. Evangelicalism tends to be moving toward a sort of theoretical universalism. And even if most evangelicals say they believe Jesus is the only way of salvation, when it comes to evangelism or supporting missions, more and more tend to live as if they think or at least hope that there may be another way of salvation. If you remember, as far back as 10 years ago, a major study uh, that included 9,000 evangelicals showed that a majority of them believed that salvation may be possible through the religions that people around the world have grown up in.
0: David, how would you evaluate this reluctance biblically? Is sharing the gospel with a lost person a suggestion or a mandate in the Bible?
7: I think it's difficult to escape the fact that sharing the gospel with the lost is a mandate and not just a suggestion. Uh, if you look at the Old Testament, the world had to go to Israel to receive the revelation necessary for salvation. So people went to uh, believers. On the other hand, with the New Testament, that direction changed and now God's people in the church age are to go into the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, one of the last things that Jesus said after his resurrection and before his ascension into heaven in Mark 16 was, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. So I think that's uh, actually fairly clear.
0: David, as we wrap up our discussion for this week, For those who may be struggling with sharing their faith, do you have any recommendations on how to go about it?
7: Well, I'd say that you first need to make sure you understand the gospel clearly yourself. You need to have that confidence. And I would say keep working on it, on your understanding of the gospel, until you can get all the essential elements of the gospel into just a 30 to 45 second presentation. Uh, And this would include the ideas that we are sinners, bound for hell as punishment for our sins. The identity of Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who became a man, God in the flesh. That He died on the cross for our sins, in our place, taking the punishment that we deserve, and that He arose again from the dead on the third day. And salvation, which is made up of two parts, forgiveness of sin and eternal life, Uh, that salvation is available to all who place their faith and trust in Him. I would also say uh, learn to strike up conversations that are non-threatening, but that can actually be guided around to eternal matters and sharing the gospel. You also want to develop relationships with people as much as you can. This may not be possible with strangers who you may talk to, but uh, most of us know people who are, are not believers. So develop relationships with people so that people know you care about them and that you don't just see them as some sort of ministry project. And finally, I would say learn to ask leading questions and give people time to explain what they believe, because questions are less threatening than statements, and people may not feel that you're preaching at them in that case. Then you can kindly respond to their beliefs biblically and include the various parts of the gospel as appropriate. Even though it can be difficult, it doesn't necessarily have to be all that scary, but we also need to understand that Probably most people won't listen to what we have to say, and we need to uh, realize that uh, if they reject the gospel, uh, they're not rejecting us. They are rejecting this offer of salvation by the Lord.
0: Thank you, David. Journey's mercies as you travel back to the United States. We'll talk again next week.
7: Thanks, Jimmy. I'll look forward to speaking with you, Lord willing, from the states next week.
0: I'm going to take a break, and when we come back, I'll take a look at the book. It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today.
3: Please call Joshua Travel today and see how we can make your trip extra special. Call 423-821-3635 or visit us online at joshuatravel.com.
7: Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world
0: It's time right now here on Prophecy Today weekend for us to take a look at the book. We covered the world and the current events that are happening in this world, which seem to be setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled, and we did that with our broadcast partners. You know, these broadcast partners are key to our understanding of where we are today in God's end-time scenario found in the Bible. By the way, if you'd like to hear the reports from our broadcast partners You can go to my website, prophecytoday.com. Go to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network, and listen to the reports. And then do me a favor, if you will, be sure to tell a friend about these reports. You know what you can do? You can use your Facebook or Twitter to get this information out so they'll know where to go to listen to these very key reports as it relates to the end-time scenario that is found in God's Word. Thank you so very much for doing that. We want to get the information out so the body of Christ will be able to understand where we are today. And in fact, today, let's uh, spend a few moments talking about the reports from our broadcast partners— Ken Timmerman talked with us. He covers geopolitical activities. He talked about Turkey endeavoring to put together an Islamic army. He wants to bring 61 nations together, and they're mostly listed on three different passages of Scripture. If you look this up, you'll understand the prophetic scenario of what Turkey is doing. Go to Ezekiel chapter 38. By the way, Turkey is mentioned there in verses 2 and 6, Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, and Tagarma. That would be modern-day Turkey, but the other nations are listed as well. Also, you can find additionally two nations over in Psalm 83, verses 6 and 7, And Daniel chapter 11, starting at verse 40 through verse 45, you'll see an end-time scenario with a list of nations that will come together and most likely be a part of this 61-nation Islamic army that Tayyip Erdogan, president of Turkey, is endeavoring to put together. These nations an alignment of them will come together to try to destroy the Jewish state of Israel. David Dolan gave us his Middle East News update. It's the conflict at the Eastern Gate that we focused on. That's the Golden Gate and this conflict between the Palestinians and the Israeli security there on the Temple Mount. This Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a major conflict in the world that is setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. Let me suggest a couple of locations in God's Word that will assist you in your understanding of this conflict. One of them would be Malachi chapter 1. And the Edomites, that would be descendants of Esau, the Palestinian people of today, they say they will return and rebuild. The Lord says when they return, he'll call their borders the borders of wickedness. He'll have indignation against them forever. ever. Ezekiel chapter 35 talks about this group of people. They're referred to as Mount Seir in that passage. That's where Esau took his people, the Edomites, to live, and that's where they were headquartered early on in their history, there in Petra. The final conclusion for the Palestinian people found in the book of Obadiah, these Palestinians will be as if they have never been. John Rood covers another key region of the world. He covers the European Union, and we talked about a European Union army may be the outcome of Brexit, with the Great British Empire falling to a very small size now and endeavoring to try to get out of the European Union. That may well cause the European Union to put together a military operation. You know, the European Union is the infrastructure, I do believe, for the revived Roman Empire. That's Daniel chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. The old Roman Empire had a mighty army which controlled the entire world. Therefore, if you're going to revive the old Roman Empire, it must have a military operation, and Brexit may well be the way to that military operation in the revived Roman Empire, or as we would call them today, the European Union. Don DeYoung, my namesake, is a scientist. He was off to the Grand Canyon, but before he left, we talked to him about a couple of issues, evolution, and unbelievable phenomena in the heavenlies, lighting phenomena, that he explained to us you know, evolution is a theory. Remember that. It's not a fact. It must be taken by faith. And, and Don helped us to understand that principle. But again, we also brought up that creation is taken by faith as well. However, when you look at creation over evolution, the biblical approach is more logical and even more scientific. The light phenomena in the heavens a precursor to Revelation chapter 6 and Joel chapter 2. David James and I had a conversation about Millennials that are Christians and they don't believe in evangelism. The Bible demands evangelism. We must go and show forth the praises of him who hath called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. The Gospel 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 5, is the power of God unto salvation, Romans chapter 1, and we are given the ministry of reconciliation to go forth and tell the world. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's our responsibility. You know, as we stop to think about it, All of these bits of information given to us by our broadcast partners would be tangible evidence that God's plan is coming better into focus than it has ever been. We need to consider the fact that with all of this in this world happening today, indicators of how close we are to the end-time scenario found in God's Word we must consider what the next event is, and the next event is the rapture of the church. Remember 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, Jesus will shout, the archangel will shout, and the trumpet of God will sound, and you and I on this earth at that time in our living bodies will have them changed Instantly will be caught up into the heavenlies to be with him forevermore. Now that scenario, that rapture, could happen at any moment. And having made that statement, nothing left for me to say, except let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining
3: us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.